My name is John. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I serve as pastor here at the Springs, and we're really glad that you're here. If you don't know what's been going on, over the past few months, we've been journeying our way through the book of James. We're calling this series The Worthy Work. The, the reason we're calling it that is because it really speaks to the core component of the Christian faith. How a lot of times, and for a long time in my life, I thought what was essential to be a Christian was to do more, was to work my way to be a better version of myself. I couldn't have been farther from the truth. That is anti-Christian. What, what I came to realize through studying God's word, through being around God's people, is that, man, it's not about what I do, it's about what he's done. To where the, compo the component that makes Christianity Christianity is the idea of you're saved just by what you believe. And from that belief, you are made worthy. You're made new. You're given a dignity and a majesty that comes not from internally, not from inside you. It's not something you'd had all along. No, it's a gift given from a heavenly father who loves you. You're made worthy. And then from that sense of worthiness, you and I, by faith, strive to work it out. Strive to grow in a godliness. One of the things that we're going to spend time talking about today it's actually, what, what is something that slows down the momentum of that faithfulness? We're going to spend time talking about conflict. More specifically, really, where does conflict come from? But to kind of illustrate this point, I want to share with you guys a story I remember vividly from high school. I had two really good friends all throughout high school and then into college. One was Jewish, one was Hindu. I had a blast with them. Literally had the privilege of getting to go everywhere from the Bahamas to Jamaica to... Panama City, Florida. Anybody ever been to Panama City? The glorious Panama City, Florida. Yeah, all right. All the way to, got to spend some time walking through Europe with them for about a month. Close friends. Was talking to them the other day. There was a moment, though, or there was a, a spring break, I should say. Junior year of high school, a buddy's friend, he was taking him and then my other buddy, and he invited me to go as well. We went down to Jamaica. Had a great time, went down to Jamaica. Stayed at one of these really nice, anybody here ever been to all-inclusive resort? You're not bragging. It's okay. All inclusive? No, if you haven't, guys, some of these are surprisingly affordable. You should go. Well, all that to say is you understand the premise. It's all included. You don't have to ask for anything. It's all there. My, my family friend, they took us. We went. I'm down there. I'm so excited. I'm 16. I'm living life. I'm going to get a suntan, come back, go to school, king of the hill type mentality. We go down there, and one of the things that comes with it being all inclusive is when you go to the beach, you can rent like surfboards, surfboards snorkel gear. You can rent those. You ever seen those massive, it's like a tricycle on the ocean with those yellow wheels that you paddle by like steering it like a bike. But after two minutes, you realize I'm on vacation. This is exhausting. What am I doing? And you turn around and put it back. You could rent those. You could also rent these small sailboats. So me and these, me and these buddies, we'd taken the sailboat out. I'd kind of done sailing a little bit growing up 
and in no way a sailor, but you could take these sailboats out. Well, we took it out one day. Later in the day, we ended up connecting with a local there, right? Kane, he worked for the resort, and he ends up telling us about how you can see from our beach. You can see there on the beach in Jamaica, there's this other island off the beach. You can kind of see it down and out to the right, probably about my two o'clock, if you're standing there and look at the ocean straight ahead. Now, I, I could never tell exactly how far away it was because it's like crystal clear blue sky. But he tells me this island exists, and then he gives it a name. He calls it hedonism. Hedonism. What, what it was is a resort. If you don't know what hedonism is, we're going to spend some time in the text understanding what it means. But here's essentially what it means. The chief pursuit of mankind is pleasure. It's this mentality of, I will what I want. That's this core kind of ethos to hedonism. And there was this resort that, that again, they put themselves forward as, hey, come. Come, you can be about you, and we will help you do that. So there's this island called hedonism, and then I'm an idiot, 16-year-old guy with two other, and they're great people. They didn't, they're great people, but two other idiot 16-year-old folks. And so all of a sudden, we learn about this, and then we realize, and we concoct this plan, we can check out sailboats. It's where all of a sudden, the next day, we end up going down to the beach at a time where you go to check out the sailboat, and we start taking out kind of like as we normally would, and then we all look over at our shoulder, and we see the island hedonism. We have no idea how, how far it is, but we all kind of look at each other, and there's this moment of, let's see if we can get there. We start to turn the sailboat, and if you know sails, like you, you can let the sail out, but then once you catch the wind, if you really want to pick up speed, if you really want to pick up pace, and I'm sure there's technical terms for this, you pull this big rope thing that tightens the sail, and then all the sailors are like, that is just offensive. And then all of a sudden, man, you are moving fast, and there we are, three idiots sitting on a boat with a heart that shifted from, man, having a good time and joining one another in a way that was just simple, goofy playing soccer with the staff from three to four o'clock to where all of a sudden we're on a sailboat sailing towards hedonism. And then we went for a while. I can remember though looking back because it's one of those you get farther away from the beach and closer and closer to the island. And you start to think, we might actually get there. And then I can remember seeing this yellow speedboat. This yellow speedboat takes off right near where the beach where we were. And man, this speedboat is flooring it. There's two staff members of this resort that show up, these two lifeguards that show up, and they're immediately looking at us like, what are you doing? Right? We did not explain we were trying to go to hedonism. We did not have the guts to do that. But they immediately look at us. They're upset. They had to take this boat because they came to get us. They're no longer there overseeing those people in that area. And why? It's because we in our selfishness, we're like, hey, we'll just do what we want. We'll go our way. We had sailed to hedonism. Well, man, they, they verbally let us know how uh, discouraging our actions had been to them in a few different ways with a really cool, like, Rastafarian accent, right? And what do we do? We turn the boat around, and we head back. Here's the reason I share that story. It illustrates a point that James is going to talk about today. Every time you and I, we come, and our heart shifts where we turn, where that proverbial version of the island of hedonism, for you it looks different than what it looks like for me. Every time you and I shift to putting us first, 
rather than, and this is for you if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, rather than God first, what he would have for you, his will, not yours, every time we shift towards hedonism, that is where conflict begins. Yes, there was conflict with lifeguards. There could have been potential conflict with other people, not to mention the internal conflict that was taking place even in the heart of me as well as my friends at the time. Today, I want to talk about conflict. Today, I want to talk about what what is the origin, what is the source of the conflict, the dysfunction, the disagreements, the frustration, the, 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 the tension that you see when you get around certain people and you don't want to say hi. Where does that start from? Where does that come from? The reason why I think James, he makes such a big deal out of this is one, it's true to the heart and soul of all humanity. What I mean by that is you don't have to be a follower of Jesus Christ for me to say, hey man, you have conflict with people? Are there people that you generally try not to be around? Are there people that it comes easy to talk bad about them behind their back? Have you gotten in real serious arguments with family, with friends, where honestly you look back and you can remember the moments, you can remember the words that were exchanged, the things that were said. You can come here and talk about how the reality of, you've probably worked for a boss that you didn't like, you didn't respect, and you didn't agree with. There was conflict. Been a part of a company where where the overall direction where it was going was against where you thought it should go. Conflict with your kids, where your kids come and they act terrible. And then all of a sudden, out of my self-righteous sense of control and how they should be different, how they should be better, they shouldn't just be kids. I lead to conflict. You do it with those you date. You want them to be something that they're not. You, You try to change your spouse. Conflict, disagreement, dissension, disunity. We'll see it today. It's what causes quarrels and fights among you. Where does all that come from? If you're here and you do say that Jesus Christ is your Lord, here's why this matters. You are meant to wage war against conflict. I mean that in two ways. I mean that as in you are called to be a biblical peacemaker. You are called to be diligent to preserve a spirit of unity and a bond of peace. You are called to fight for there not to be conflict, but for there to be love to where you know where you stand with people. The local church, as we'll see, it's not, it is not immune to difficulty. It's not immune to dissension, to where people hold grudges, to where small factions break out in disunity, to where all of a sudden Christians can become political in the way that they treat others. No way, man, we're not immune to that. But because of the God we serve, we should resist that with every ounce we have. And if you're here, well, I think this matters, especially if you don't believe in Christ, right? If you're here and you're working through it, there's conflict in your life. There's people you don't get along with and people that don't get along with you. And there's folks where, honestly, when you think back on relationships, there's pain. One of the things I bet that's true of you is you want to avoid that pain moving forward. We all do. What you'll see today, whether you believe that this book is inerrant and true or not, what you'll see is the greatest way to avoid conflict in the future is to deal with internal conflict inside you. The reality of conflict is is that my personal conflict, my, my personal dysfunction and frustration, 
that's what leads to interpersonal conflict. Conflict with others, conflict with friends, conflict with my spouse, conflict with my daughter, conflict with my parents, conflict with those I work with. It overflows from me. Where are we going to learn all this? We're going to learn it in James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first six verses where really what James is going to show us is what is at the root of conflict. He's going to share this theme. The common denominator of the conflict in my life, the common denominator of the conflict in your life, it's you. It's me. You, you think back on all the difficult moments with parents, with friends, with colleagues, with people you work with, the, the moments with kids, with, with friends, with your community group. Think back on them all. There's one common theme. The common denominator is you. The common denominator of the pain that I've created, that I've led to in relationship, I've always been a part of it. And so knowing that reality, James goes to work at how do we diagnose where that comes from and how do we, by faith, walk the other direction. He's going to do that by teaching us three things. The first will be why does conflict start? The second is going to be what does conflict show? What what does that betray in our own hearts? And then the third thing it will be how does conflict stop? If you've joined us for the first time to set this up where we've been, James, he's writing this letter to talk about, hey, hey, church, here is what faithfulness, real faith, it looks like. It's not meant to be a Sunday morning event that you come and you attend and you check a box if you either find me boring, mildly entertaining, or engaging, and then go about your way, never changed. That is not faith. That is not the local church. Faithfulness instead looks like an understanding of how much God loves you, and then from that love, faithfully striving, imperfectly, yet continually to live it out. And he's going across all these different themes, all these different categories, and last week, he put this hinge point in the text, where he really talked about this core root of wisdom, And what we're going to see today and then over the next two weeks, and arguably more than that, we'll see how you and I, we have a choice. We can live our life according to God's wisdom or our wisdom. The way James called our wisdom is he called it demonic wisdom. We can choose to live according to what God would have, and it brings blessing. It brings joy. Like it's the reality of God didn't want me to go to that island, but God wanted something far better for me. It took me years to realize that. And so how do we come and how do we do that? How do we be led by God's wisdom, not mine? The second thing that you'll see here, especially in these first verses, is James. He's going to shift his tone. Right now, if you know much about the book of James, James is a pretty straight up guy. He just tells you as it is. He's, He's a great pastor. You don't ever have to wonder where you stand with him. But he uses this phrase to really start off every section. My brothers, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. What what he's speaking to there is the family of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's this appeal that does two things in the heart of the audience. It reminds them, one, here's who you are in Jesus Christ. You are of the family of God. Once you're God's son, once you're God's daughter, there's nothing you can do to lose that. 
It's also this appeal, though, from James, where he's saying, my brothers, my sisters. It's like him leaning in with this reminder, this gracious tone. I get it, but I got to help you. You're going to see this shift today. Where in the past, James was known for my brothers. You'll see what he uses today instead is the word you. He'll use it 14 times in six verses. The reason he's saying that is he's shifting out of this compassionate appeal where there's this sense of empathy to where now, man, he just goes hard after it in rebuking the Christian church. He's shifting from I'm with you to here is your sin. And you see him do it in a way to where he not only addresses the pain, he not only addresses why it's there, but he addresses the solution and where to lead them. He's a phenomenal pastor and a phenomenal leader. That's what we're going to learn from him today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. We're in James 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not ask, or excuse me, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. As we look at this reality taught throughout this text that you and I, when it comes to a con the conflict in our lives, we are the common denominator. I am the issue. As much as I want to make it about my wife, other people, other friends, other people in my community group, far more often than not, the issue is me. So why does conflict start? First reason, you'll see it, is because of uncontrolled desire. Uncontrolled desire. Let me show you that starting back in one. James, he starts with what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? One of the things that is characteristic of James, he opens with this rhetorical question, and he's going to give the answer. He's going to say, what causes quarrels? What, what he's talking about there is the sense of almost like um, infighting. Quarrels, the Greek word, it leads to the English translation of polemics. Polemics. If you don't know what that is, it's a strong verbal attack. It's a strong written attack against someone. It's showing this internal conflict and strife. It has this relational overtone. And then he says fights. Fights would have been a military term. He's talking about how as much as you try the pain in your life, you bury it, you try not to deal with it, you say it's not that big of a deal. Here's what he's saying. Fights lead to wounds. He's saying it hurts. What causes these things? And then he adds this part. Among you. Right, he's not saying that this difficulty, he's not saying that conflict and dysfunction, it's between Christian, non-Christian. Those who believe, those who don't believe, those who hold to a conviction, those who hold to a completely another conviction. No, he's saying this conflict is taking place amongst us. He's saying it's taking place amongst people who come and they sit in rows on a Sunday morning and they sing, how great is our God, and they walk out to lunch and they gossip about someone they saw as they walked their way to the car. 
He's singing about people who come and they commit to go to a community group, right? And they come to their community group time and then they hang out and as soon as they get in the car with a spouse, what they do is they start talking about someone behind their back when they never said it to him. He's doing it to people like me who can come and try and make an issue with someone else when really the problem started here. So what causes all of this among you inside the church? And then he answers it. Is it not this? Your Bible may say, does it not come from? He's pointing to the origin, to the source. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Passions there. That is where we get the English translation. If you look at it in the Greek, he'd know. It leads to the word hedonism. What causes the conflict in my life? It's because I desire, I desire to make life about me. What does that create? There's a war within me. Right? One of the things that's true of followers of Jesus Christ is when you come to know him, the Holy Spirit indwells you, fills you. It's a one-time experience. You get all the Holy Spirit that you need in that moment. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You get a new heart. You're changed. You have a different desire. Your heart begins to shift towards a true north. And what I mean by that is a love and a sincere, repentant pursuit of God. The war within talks about what still happens. Anybody ever hang out with folks who... And maybe this was you. They become a Christian and all of a sudden they think they're supposed to stop sinning. You, you ever think that? Or, or you get around people who think, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm never gonna sin again. Or hey, I've sinned, therefore I must not be. No, here, here's what's true. Though you and I, we have the Holy Spirit. There's also a war that takes place inside of us. It's a war between the spirit and the flesh. I remember the first time somebody taught this to me. I was in a discipleship group. I was living in Dallas at the time. I was totally new to faith, right? And this guy, he was working his way through the book of Romans, and I just went to hang out with him, and I was so grateful, right? To try and learn his Bible, he, he had this system where he tried to almost create a summary title for every chapter, right? And his summary title for this one chapter out of the Bible, it was Romans 7. He called it the Battle of the bears. At first I was like, okay, maybe he went to Baylor, right? I get it, man. It's like some Baylor thing. I don't fully get it. No, it turns out he went to A&M. So I started asking, man, why do you call this the battle of the bears? Let me read for you out of Romans 7. This is verses 22 through 24. We'll have it on the screens. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He has a desire to be faithful. But I see in my members, he means they're his body. I see in my, myself and my body another law. It wages war against the law of my mind, the law of God. It, it makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, that, that resides in my body. He's talking about how there's two things fighting to take control of the daily function of the heart of a Christian. The Holy Spirit, my spirit, God's love, my flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul expounds on, hey, 
Here's the battle of the bears. He, he chose that theme, battle of the bears, because he just liked to think about bears fighting. I wish there was a better reason than that, but he just envisioned two bears going at it as the personification of every day when his feet hit the ground, how he is called moment by moment. Every hour, I need you to say, hey, God, you lead, not me. Why does conflict start? It's when we can't control that, right? The, the theme, though, when we think about the battle of the bears, where, where you have to be very careful is what's not true in Christianity is there's this yin-yang component, right? For every force, there is an equal or greater force. Like for so much light, there is a balance of darkness. That's unbiblical. That's not true. Light overcomes darkness. The power of the Holy Spirit within you slays the flesh. You are not a slave to any sin. You are not a victim to any habitual thing you find yourself into. No, the battle of the bears, there's one bear that's jacked. And he wins every time. But what happens when we don't in that moment control, when we don't in that moment yield to the spirit, our uncontrolled desire leads to conflict. The second thing on why conflict starts, it's not just uncontrolled desire, it's our unmet desires. You see this here in verse two, you desire and do not have so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You desire and do not have, so you murder. What, what does he mean by murder there? He can mean both literal, like you take someone's life. We would all know that is a realistic example of conflict and where it can lead. What James likely is doing here is he's referencing to what his big brother taught in Matthew 5. We're talking about how murder in the heart of a believer in Jesus Christ in the eyes of God, it doesn't just happen when you literally take someone's life. It happens when there's anger towards someone. Matthew 5, verse 21 through 22, two of the most convicting verses in the Bible for me. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. This is Jesus talking, where Jesus puts on par this sense of, hey, with the spirit within you, don't just draw the line at, okay, but I didn't kill him. That's not it. You draw the line when the heart shifts past that moment, where there's anger, where there's bitterness, where there's a dissension, where there's a harm intended towards the other. You have, and you don't get so you murder, you covet, that just means you're envious, you're jealous, and you cannot obtain. And so what does that lead to? You fight and you quarrel. Here's one of the reasons why I love my Bible and one of the reasons why I love James. He does a phenomenal job. You see this language here, so, then, so, then. One of the things we've talked about, and we've shared it from the stage a few different times, is how to really examine sin in our lives. There's two categories. You, you could do it with more than this. But there's two categories that you can add to the layers of how we deal with our sin. The first category would be the attitude. The next category would be the action. Attitudes fuel actions. You desire and do not have, that's your attitude. So what do you do? You murder, that's your action. Right, you're envious and cannot obtain, that's your attitude. So what do you do? You fight 
and you quarrel. What James is doing is he's showing every time your and I sin, it becomes external. We must trace that root internally. Every conflict with another starts with conflict from within, unmet desire. In a minute, we'll see where does God want us to focus that desire? Where does God want us to put it? So why does conflict start? It's uncontrolled desire. It's the battle of the bears. It's when you and I, we allow the flesh to lead rather than the Holy Spirit of God. What's the other one? When unmet desire, we don't come to God and ask for his help. We take it into our own hands. And he expounds on that next. Picking the text back up. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What's the third reason why conflict starts? It's because of my utterly selfish desires. Utterly selfish desires. Don't you love that? Like James right here, he sets it up to where, hey, your attitudes lead to these broken actions. The conflict with others, it starts internal. He, he acknowledges you and I have an internal problem. You and I have a soul issue. We want more faithfulness and love than oftentimes what we exhibit, what we demonstrate. And then he sets it up to where, here, here's what the solution should look like. You do not have because you do not ask. What James is saying through that is he, and there's a word, he presupposes, right? What you must understand in order to understand that text is the reality of how James views God. He's kind. as a good father who when you, ask for a, when you ask for bread, he doesn't give you a stone. He wants to come and bring honor to it. You do not ask because you do not, or you do not have because you do not ask. Right, all of the conflict in my life, it starts often because of my self-centeredness. Because I want to make it about me. Because someone made me feel threatened, made me feel insecure, made me feel anxious, made me feel out of control, made me feel less significant, made me feel upset. By the way, you too. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness has this amazing ability to drive us towards self-sufficiency. You ever get around folks, and this may be you, who write their world is all about them. And because it's all about them, they are also the only one who can bring help. They are also the only one who can bring clarity. They don't want your advice. Why? Because they have their own. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing their own opinion. Self-centeredness drives to self-sufficiency. To where you and I, we tend to forget, man, there's a God in heaven who wants to help me. There's a God in heaven who wants to bring me grace in a moment of need, who wants to serve me with care that I wish I had. But my utterly selfish desire is what slows that down. And then James goes on to the next part, because then he anticipates too, well, hey, let's say you do ask. Like, let's say you and I do ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Wrongly here, James, what he's doing, he's speaking to the motives. He's drawing us back to what's the difference between God's wisdom and my wisdom. God's wisdom is, it's about him. 
and I humbly submit, I humbly follow. It's about him. Man's wisdom, it's about me. It's my way. If this does not go my way, then it must be wrong. If it's not going my way, my way must be God's way. Therefore, they have to come and see it my way. It's my will be done, not God's. Imagine this. We come to a creator of the heaven and the earth that we say is good, kind, loving, trustworthy, ever-giving. Or we say, you are the one we want to follow. And then we ask for things with conditions. We ask for things and say, hey, give me what I want. Give me what I want, not so I can use this to honor you with a sense of gratitude and glorifying the reality of you are a kind father. But give it just because I want it. Well, how do we know that's what he's saying? Again, he uses that word passion. We come and we ask God for things, but not for him, for us. Here's the amazing thing out of this. Jesus, so John's big brother, he wants you and I to know, go and ask God to meet the desire. Go and ask God to tame the conflict. I can remember one of the first verses that I learned as a follower of Jesus Christ. It was John 16, 24. I learned it, if you know who navigators are, I learned it in this navigators class, and it was literally titled, The Assurance of Answered Prayer. Dude, I'm new to faith. That seems a little bit like genie in a bottle type thing. Okay, you guys are obviously much more holy than I ever am or will be. But like genie in a bottle, you're telling me there's assurance of what I ask for. And what I'm telling you, there are things you can be assured when you ask. John 16, 24, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, you will receive. Y'all hear that? It's a promise. You will receive and what comes and your joy will be complete. God is in no way opposed when you and I come and we ask him for things. God is in no way opposed when you and I come and we plead with him, man, I have a brokenness in me. Would you satisfy that? Would you fill that with contentment? Would you actually supernaturally come inside and make me yield? Loves that, man. My daughter, even at a really young age, every time she comes, as simple as it is, whether, hey, she doesn't know how to put on socks, she can't put on her shoes, but she comes and she asks for help, not for something that's going to cause her harm, but for something that's good, that's right. I love helping her. God doesn't answer many of our prayers because at the root of the prayers is not God. It's us. It's not worshiping him. It's worshiping us. So why does conflict start? Man, we have uncontrolled desires. There's a battle going on. And in that, we do not allow the spirit to win. There are unmet desires. We, we try to get things to meet desires that are never intended. Well, man, if I could just make my wife this way, then I'd finally feel loved, validated, encouraged, and known to the world as I should. Man, if I could just get my husband to treat me this one way, then this sadness, the depression, my depression, it's his fault. If I could just get the person I'm dating, right? If they could just come, ask me to marry them, then I'd finally, then I'd finally really be content. No, 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 it's just, I just desire companionship. No. 
It's every time my heart tries to make an idol out of something. That's why conflict starts. And I use a person, I use a situation, I use a scenario. Satisfy that. What does James do next? Next, James is going to show us. What does that demonstrate in my heart? What does that demonstrate in yours? Jump with me now, back in the Bible. We're in verse 4. Verse 4. James starts out off here super friendly and encouraging. (laughs) You adulterous people. Like he puts an exclamation point on it, right? You adulterous people. Do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. First phrase you see there, you adulterous people. What James is doing, he's building on like Old Testament prophetical language. As you study your Bible, there's this theme that constantly shows up throughout the Old Testament in God's relationship with Israel. It's symbolic of our relationship with God. It's how Israel comes and they have this pledge of faithfulness to God. And yet they, just as we, consistently betray that. It's this fidelity of faith. And yet they then go and in an adulterous faith, commit themselves to the worship of other gods commit themselves to go and align themselves to other countries to where their safety and security not in God, but in people and in things. It's this adulterous faith. And James is showing every time you and I go and we say, oh, how I love you. But then we leave and I so can do this. And then I leave and man, I go and I'm like, I know I said I love you, man, but I really love what I love. Can you make life better for me? Can you give me the things that I want? God, until now you've not asked. I would love a bass boat. Anybody else ever done that? Me neither. Yeah, me neither. Psych. But what does that show? This adultery that resides in the soul. This part of me that, yes, I say God is good. But really, I don't think he's all that good. Because if he was, I'd trust him to satisfy. I'd trust him to bring peace. I'd trust him to bring contentment. But you know what I do? I'm my own little side hustle. And often it doesn't become side, it becomes primary. Where I get what I want. You, adulterous John. You, adulterous Springs. You, adulterous local church with people from everywhere from San Antonio to Austin. He's examining the sin in my heart and in yours. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Last time James talked about friendship is he talked about Abraham. How Abraham showed he was a friend of God because he did what God said. How even though he didn't fully understand it, even though though he didn't fully get it, he did everything he could to allow God to lead rather than than him, friendship. But what James is doing here is he's showing the contrast of where that can really appear in our lives. He's showing what does adultery look like? It looks like friendship with the world. What does he mean by the world? The world is simply everything outside of a pursuit of godliness in a godly way. 
It's not an indictment on non-believers, but what he's saying is you're trying to find water from a well that pumps dry. You're making friends with what brings pain. You've made comfort. You've made an ally of what Christ died for, making friendship with the world. And then he says it is enmity with God. Your Bible may say it shows that you oppose God. You have hostility towards God. Enmity, it's simply whenever you oppose something or are hostile towards something. What does that mean? The sin in my life, God's not gonna come and celebrate that. God will not come and bless me in my disobedience. He loves me too much to bless me in my disobedience. In my disobedience, does it mean I lose my relationship with him? No. Does it mean he's not my heavenly father? No. Does it mean my sins aren't forgiven? No. Does he mean that grace doesn't go deeper? Absolutely not. But it does mean that in that moment, in my unrepentant sin, God opposes me. God opposes me. We hear that, and it's like tough language. Yet we know that to be true just, just in life. My daughter Lily, a couple weeks or months ago, we have this couch. She's coloring, learning to color. So you see where this is going, and she decides to practice on our couch, right? So she's drawing on the side of the couch. Now me, in this moment, is a good father. I've got a few options, Right? My options start with, okay, Lily, I love you. I am for you. This is not cool. Mom and dad are trying to sell that on Craigslist right now. Don't do that. I oppose what she's doing. So I go to Lily, and I come, and I say, sweetie, we don't draw on couches. Right? She's really young. She doesn't really get it. We don't draw on couches. And then what do I do? I take her to the other room. Did I lose love for her? No. Do I hate her? No. But do I depose that which displeases me? Yes. So many times you meet with folks who remain in habitual sin, or you know there's sin in you. You know God wants you to deal with it. The sin that I know God wants me to kill, the battle of the bears to win in a different way. And yet we're passive towards it. We, we trifle with it. We call partial obedience obedience. The parts of your life where you know God would call you to repentance. And this is where, man, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what matters. That God would call you to repentance. And you don't. God loves you. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You are forgiven. It does not compromise your eternity with him. But you must know this. You are then opposed by the creator of the heavens and the earth. That though he loves you, he loves you too much to bless disobedience and dysfunction. From opposition, what does he do? He disciplines those he loves. There's a phenomenal difference between discipline and punishment. For punishment has to do with fear. Perfect love casts out fear. God does not punish his people. Parents, you should not punish your children as a reflection of God. What's the difference between discipline and punishment, far often it's the motive. It's the love extended, not the overflow of anger. 
It's the correction and training, the discipleship, the development, not the do what I say. Because far too often when we, when I feel that, I respond that way because I don't like how that person, that child is making me feel. I make my internal sense of control and entitlement to peacefulness about them. God doesn't do that with us. We shouldn't do that. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Anytime you make yourself a friend of the world, it's that proverbial like you straddle the fence. Like you come and you say, yes, no, I follow Jesus Christ, yet there's active rebellion in your life and there's a coldness towards it. You must know you cannot love the world. You cannot love sin and love God. He loves you too much for that. He calls me, he calls you back from that because doing show, it demonstrates it's not a friendship with him. It's a friendship with the sin that he died for. I can remember I had a really close friend growing up. We're still close to this day, but it's one of those growing up, man, he was best friend, would have called him a brother, really close. As we got older, I can remember he and I, we kind of connected through church. If you don't know a bit of my story, I, I grew up calling myself a Christian for most of my life until after college, I actually became a Christian and understood what that meant. So this took place for me in that season, and I can remember going and talking with him. We were at this church event, and we both walked in. We're like, man, neither one of us want to be here. So we left. We went downstairs, the sanctuary was open, we go to sit, and it's gonna be one of those like heart-to-heart emotional moments where we both really tell each other, man, I just don't care about this whole God thing that much. He came and he sat down, and man, he and I, brothers, closest can be. He was a guy who I thought in that season, man, there's nothing that he really doesn't know about me, nothing we don't hide, spent more time at his house, he at mine, like family, And he began to share with me something. He shared, hey, John, the times when I'm not around you, right? My heart, it's not just going towards looking at images and pornography that it shouldn't. It's going towards, man, I am consistently sleeping with different women. And it went on to then build. He's like, and hey, man, so you know, when you're not around me, I've, I've gotten into drugs. Like I'm consistently using drugs and it's escalating, man, where I'm starting to sell, starting to deal. And I can remember sitting there thinking, okay, I came to talk about this. We're talking about this, right? But here was the part where it hurt the most. The part where it hurt the most is he was my closest friend. He was the guy that I thought there was a sense of camaraderie, connection, and closeness like nobody else. But in reality, he had this whole other world he'd made friendship with. He had this whole other side that I didn't even know. Did that mean he wasn't still my friend? No. Did that mean that he and I didn't connect after that? No. But was that confusing? Yes. The common denominator of the conflict in his life, in the same way the common denominator of the conflict in mine, it was me and it was him. And what did his commitment to that dysfunction, to that sin to meeting godly desires in ungodly ways lead to. It showed a friendship with the world. It showed a friendship with things far other than me. And it led to pain. 
in his life and mine in the same way that led to mine. Now, as I share that, I think what can happen is folks begin to think, okay, friendship world, got it. Don't cheat on my wife. Don't fool around with my boyfriend. Don't do drugs. Okay, I'm doing all right. I really do think that's a pervasive culture in New Braunfels. There's this wicked sinfulness in this community. There's this wicked sinfulness inside me. Where we tend to think, well, at least we're not doing that. Well, at least that's not me. But at least I'm not doing this. Or it could be so much better or so much worse, excuse me, if I did that. And yet, what runs rampant? This evil sin of control? Where we not only try to control our own lives, we try to control our spouse, try to control our kids, we try to control our workplace, our boss, to where if things don't go our way, we so quickly lose it. What's another sin that runs rampant? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. We who come, even though God Almighty had to die for us, that when Christ was nailed to the cross, he did it for your sins and for mine. We somehow come with this like cloaked Christian version of humility meets pride, but in reality, we just think a lot of us. That is favoritism. That is friendship with the world. It is wicked and it is evil and he died for it in you and he died for it in me. That's why Christians, man, self-righteousness, it's confusing. Why? You had to be given righteousness. No righteousness comes from you. I couldn't have it. He had to give it to me. You couldn't get it. He had to give it to you. The other thing that really I think, and both of these come out of this, is there's this tolerance, this tolerance here of worry, nervousness, anxiety, fear. Hear me say, folks can find themselves in deep cycles of pain where they need real help. But we've somehow come and tolerated this sin to where it's almost become normal and expected. To where we as a church, we don't come and even think to confess the reality of, hey, you know what? As I thought about my week, I found myself playing out five different scenarios and doing my best to manipulate the situation, to manipulate the people to get what I want. Hey, hey, in my life, I've spent this week, even though Jesus Christ calls me to set my mind on things that are above, on things that are good and right and holy, I've thought about me pretty much the entire time. Hey, even as I come, I, I tend to have this mindset that my problems are worse. People don't get me. I can't tell folks what's going on, what's the common denominator across it all. You and I are at the root of it. It's man's wisdom. It's not God's wisdom. So as we come and I remind us, as I remind me, what does conflict show? It shows a friendship with the world. You are far more friendly with the world, church. I am far more friendly with the world than what I'd like to admit. Now, how do we fix it? Where do we go from here? Let's read verses five and six. Verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit 
that he has made to dwell in us. I pray that becomes one of the most beautiful verses you ever know in your Bible after this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let, let me recap. You and I have a lot of conflict. Conflict is with other people, but it starts with us. What causes quarrels and dissensions among you? Is it not your selfish passions at war within you? It comes from us. It's self-centeredness. It's our broken tendency to find and meet desires our way on our terms, the way we want, not the way God would have us. That sinfulness, it does not show a fidelity of faithfulness to God. It shows a friendship with the world. And yet, here's God's love. And yet, here's God's grace. Verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says? What James is gonna do here is he's gonna introduce a general summary of the Old Testament, of your, of your Bible, really. Right, he's not quoting one specific verse. It would be as if I said, hey, the Bible says God loves you, Jesus died for you, and he wants a relationship with you. That's true, the Bible says that. But that's not one direct quote. What James is doing here is he's showing this general theme and support of even though you and I wander, here is what has always been true. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us but he gives more grace. One of the things you may not know, this is the most difficult verse in the entire book of James to translate. The most difficult verse in the entire book of James to translate. Here's why it really matters if we get this right, because it's the heart. Right, there's generally three different options. The Holy Spirit who indwells you jealously yearns for you, and he gives more grace. Option B, God yearns jealously for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which indwells you and me, and he gives more grace. Or C, and here's why it really matters, the human spirit, which indwells you, yearns to envy, but God gives more grace. So how do you and I know which way to translate it? How do you and I know which one it should be and which scholars we should trust? Here's what I tell you. Context. Context drives the whole thing. Just before, it talks about your and I, how we have a tendency towards an adulterous faith, how there's this battle of the bears right before this war within us. And what leads that war? What prevails in that war? It's the Holy Spirit. And this is where God says, despite all of that sin, a gospel love. It's that he yearns jealously over the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. You and I, even in my moment of sinfulness, when God looks on me, he sees me as righteous. He sees me as loving. Even in the moments where I come and I'm cruel to my wife, I'm unkind to my daughter, I'm rude to the folks that I work around. I come and, and I meet with folks and there's this ju ju judgmental sense inside of me. When you are short with your spouse, when you use your family and situations to get what you want, but you rationalize it with some good explanation because you're better at verbally thinking on your feet than they are. When, when you come and you say, I don't think I should, because in reality, it's just cloaked insecurity. Insecurity that Jesus Christ 
died for. When, when you come and you sit with a posture where we talk about community and you think, well, I don't really need that. That's for them. Sin. When you actively sit in disobedience, God says, I yearn jealously for you. It's not because of anything we did. It's because of the spirit inside of us. What's someone that you yearn jealously for? That you sincerely, you love, that you're proud of, that you admire, that you adore. Like even as you think about that, names and people come to mind, but even still you think, but it, it must be better. And I believe it is. There's a God in heaven who loves you so much. That is at the core of desire. Though we want other things, he wants us. And even following that, and he gives more grace. If that does not lead you to want to follow after him in faithfulness, what I'm telling you is you have a problem. If that does not create in you, that is the kindest demonstration that I've ever known. You have a problem, which is why, which is why he ends it with. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. He's addressed that. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's referencing Proverbs 3.34 here. What he's teaching is what he said before. The core of our conflict is us. It's my pride. God opposes that. He won't bless that. If I remain in that, it won't bring fruit of righteousness. Love, joy, peace, patience. My family will be marked by strife. This church will. Your community group will. The people you work with will. You won't be marked by blessing and peace in the wake that follows you. You'll be marked by dissension, frustration, tension. And yet God, what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. He so looks to help those who say, Dad, Father in heaven, Savior of the world that loved me when I didn't love him, will you help me? Will you care for me? Will you meet the desire? Will you help me to realize how you are the one that's good, even though I try to steal goodness and validation, significance, pride, money, greed, whatever that is? Will you help me to find that in you, not to find it in others? What's the common denominator in all of my sin? It's me. In all of my conflict, it's me. What's the common denominator in all of your conflict? It's you. If you're walking out of here and you're thinking, well, no, but they do this and they do this, and that's still the way you're leaning, what I'm telling you is go back and reread this. Why does conflict start? It's uncontrolled, unmet, and utterly selfish desire. It's self-centeredness. What does it show? It shows a friendship with the world. It shows that my faith, even though I proclaim it to be faithful, it's adulterous at times. How do I solve it? How do we fix it? How do we stop it? We realize that even though we yearn for other things, God yearns for us. And you must fight for a death grip on that reality. Self-preach that every day. Even if you don't feel it, that does not mean it's not true. And then knowing it's still, it gives more grace. And what must that produce in you and me? Humility. Deep humility. There's nothing more attractive on a person than humility. 
It's been well said, pride is the root of all evil. It's also well said, humility is the root of all righteousness. Because humility comes from God as God, I am not. He is right, I am not. His way, not mine. And he calls us to that. I got to see this lived out, and I'll close with this. This week, a good friend of mine said, hey, could you come get breakfast? Went to go connect with her, grabbed a collie, we go to get breakfast. Sent me this text message, just one of those, hey, I'd love to meet sooner rather than later. In my line of work, what that usually means is there's something serious, right? So immediately, okay, yeah, well, we can move this, meet you here, go to do that. I show up, we're going to connect over breakfast tacos. This has been a friend of mine, walked faithfully with her for some time. We show up at the table where, where my friend, she starts down this path where she really begins to share, hey, John, under your leadership, here's how I was really hurt. Here's how I thought something could have been different. Here's how I thought something could have been better. You ever get a moment of feedback where, like, as soon as they start, you just pray, okay, God, man, I got to leave here being marked by humility. And I got to own what's mine. Man, I'm sitting there. It's 7 a.m. I just ordered a breakfast taco, and that's my prayer. And she comes and shared, hey, here's where it was. And then you began to see this heart shift. You began to see this faithful, Christ-like maturity to where there's almost this pivot. And she says, but really, this is entirely my fault. It was entirely my sin of self-righteousness and what was expected, what I thought was right, wanting to feel validated, wanting to be significant, wanting not to, not to feel a sense of insecurity and really the resentment I've had towards you over the past 10 days, it's because I was trying to make you the bad guy of my bad soul care. I'm sitting there, y'all. That's not normal. Most times, people, they just lay into you, right? But you see this shift. And I sat there, and here's the only thing I felt. God, would you make me like this woman? God, would you make me faithful like that? Would you make me yield to the Holy Spirit to where when I want to come and point to the problems and the conflict in other people, I'm thoughtful like James to examine the so then. I'm thoughtful as he says to come and examine where's the desire going wrong? How am I using this person? How am I using this situation to make me feel better? She came to ask forgiveness from me. She led me to the whole thing. That was the type of faith I want to imitate. Imagine, church, if that was us. Imagine if we really did that. that. That's not to say there aren't moments where both people say, will you forgive me? But imagine if we really were a people who our first step was towards, what's the log in my eye? Our first step was towards, God, how have I missed it? Man, if we did that, you know what this place would be? Beautiful. Real unity, an honest sense of love to where when you walk through the doors on a Sunday morning for an event as a member of the local church, you'd see people and not have to avoid folks. There wouldn't be tension. There would be, I've missed you. How have you been? You know what that is? That is a light. That is a city on a hill. That, that's the type of church that people want to be a part of. That's the only type of church that Jesus Christ says would we be. But you and I. We have broken desires. You and I, we create conflict. The way out is realizing you and I are the common denominator. When we find this in Christ, 
we care for others as we should. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for friends, for the, cho- for the chance of gathering, for loving you. I thank you for the truth of your word and what it says. God, we ask that you'd come and may we find desires met in you, not, not in what we think, but in what you think. We can't do that without your help. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Guys, if you're here and there's conflict in your life and you don't know how to resolve it, we would love to help you learn how to be a biblical peacemaker and what that looks like. Conflict resolution is a mandate of God's people. But as you go to do that, man, I pray you'd live it. You guys go now and have a great week of worship. See you next week.